Hello, hello, hello. My name is Robert. I am the recovery guy, and this is The Checkup. Very much. I'll uh, take this off the mic stand so I can do my uh, best impression of a stand-up comedian. Sometimes my sobriety is a little funny, as as many of us are. Uh, I really like Bonifil. I've I've been to the club on uh, about four occasions for Chaz's uh, uh, birthday in in December, and I I've spoken there and came to a noon meeting. And and being a person who got sober in an Alano club in Las Vegas back in 1986, I, I really like the, the hometown effect and feeling that you get when you walk into a place like, a, like, a, like Bonneville. So officially, my name is Robert, I'm alcoholic. And I think most importantly, um, my, my dear friend and, and, and sponsor, Slow Will, um, he always introduced himself as a happy, grateful, recovered alcoholic. And when I didn't know Will very much, um, I was almost offended because that could sound arrogant, right? If you don't know who the person is or you don't know a lot about uh, the program as a whole. But the more I got to know Will and, and understand AA and the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous and the plan of recovery that's encased in the first 164 pages, uh, I learned he should be, right? For those of us who have been around for a while, if we are working the program as it was designed, right? Because in the forward to the first edition, it says we are 100 Americans. And it says to show you how we have recovered is precisely why we wrote this book. So when I read the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous precisely, I am a happy, grateful, recovered alcoholic. Because we do recover from a seemingly hopeless state of mind and body. We are grateful. We're not a glum lot. We are sure that God wants us to be happy, joyous, and free. All of those things. And so if I am living out the program one day at a time, according to this big book, then I should be able to claim those things, right? I like to even take it to the level that we can get well, right? And I've had some people in the past get it twisted and say, well, you can't be cured. And I think, well, I never said the word cured, right? Um, when we read more about alcoholism, I so relate to that because it, it essentially says that, that the phenomena of craving is stamped in my DNA. And I can never safely consume alcohol in any level, right? But that doesn't mean I can't get well. That doesn't mean I can't recover. That doesn't mean I can't go from that hopeless state of mind and body to someone who has a message to share and encourage people as we go, right? Because we share our experience, strength, and hope with each other that we might solve our common problems and to help others to recover from alcoholism, right? And that's what we do. And so earlier when, before the meeting started, Chaz said, well, you know, what should we do to go into this to introduce it? It's a little unorthodox, uh, but I congr congratulate you all because you're not here to hear me speak. You're here to get sober and stay sober another day. And, and for that, that's why we're all here, right? 
Um, but Chaz asked me, he said, what should I say? How should I go about this? And I said, you know what? Two things I want to hear. I want to hear uh, the preamble of Alcoholics Anonymous, and I want to hear how it works. Because those were the two things that captured me when I first came into the program. When we first come in, you know, for me anyway, it was all about trying to be comfortable, right? We're so uncomfortable everywhere we go, and we always think it's about where we're at. We never think for, the, for, the, for a minute of us, because we're always medicated, we never stop and think, well, maybe it's me, right? But no, it's the job, it's the wife, it's, it's, it's the... It's the, it's the friends, it's, it's everything else, but it's me. So we're always looking for a place to be comfortable, right? And so when I came to Alcoholics Anonymous, it was really no different. Fortunately, I got clean and sober in an environment like your Alano Club here in town, where there was a lot of socialization and you could really get to know people on a personal level and set aside what they were doing in recovery, Right. And, and that's good because that allowed my walls to be lowered. That allowed me to open up to you as a friend, right? Like I know Chris and I know Todd and I know Chaz and I know Tess. It would allow me to open up to them because I like them, right? And, and because I like them, I'm more than willing to listen to what they have to say. And I begin looking at their life and I begin seeing things about them that I would like to occur with me. Right. And once I get that interest going, then I say, well, Chaz, I, I see you're doing some things in your life and you're going to EMT and you're not settling. You got your GED, got all these things going on. How did you do it? Because I want to get there, you know, and at that point, AA begins to have my ear in the beginning. I was just looking for a place where I didn't have to die. Right. And I could go because I couldn't go home anymore. Right. And I wasn't employable anymore. So it was either you know, hiding under my covers and my motel that I paid $80 a week for in Las Vegas, right? Or it was to be at the Alano Club. It was to be at the turning point. And I found it much better to be there because there was a part of me that said I was okay right where I was at. Remember that feeling? Remember that feeling of being so uncomfortable, again, regardless of where you were, what you were doing, who you were with, there was always a sense that something was wrong. And if it wasn't wrong, it was about to go wrong. And so we drink and we use, we try to find that magic combination of substances that take us from what I call a nothing to an almost, right? To where we just get a little sweetly reasonable, we get a little bit comfortable so we don't have to blow our brains out when we go home. And I don't know about you, but that was often my goal. What do I have to do so I don't kill myself? Because life was becoming more uncomfortable every single day. And consequently, I drank a little bit more every single day. Because tolerance says, and this is scientific, this is not my opinion, tolerance says I need to do more today than I did yesterday to achieve the same effect. And that's how we go in our disease. That's our disease model. That's why we go from a person who's trying alcohol experimentally to a person who's drinking occasionally to a person who's drinking more heavy to a person who becomes chronic, right? And for those of you who have not become chronic, congratulations. Your bottom doesn't have to be as low as some of ours had to be to get us here. 
That was one of the big dilemmas early on in recovery, as Bill will talk about. How do we raise the bottom? How do we let people know that you don't have to lose what many of us have lost? You don't have to go through some of the things that so many of us have to go through to get to this point that says, I can't do this anymore, I need help. For me, I'll never forget the day, it was in February, February 11th of 1986. I was living in Las Vegas. I had uh, lost another job at the Las Vegas Hilton. And back in those days, making $1,000 a week was pretty good money, right, back in 1986. And, and I'd lost another job, and I'd gotten my paycheck, and I went over to this place called Davy's Locker, which was right over by where I lived, and I lost $1,000 between drink and gamble. So I woke up the next day, and I realized what I had done. Now, previous... How many of us hear voices, right? I would hear voices often, but the voices weren't imaginary voices. The voices were real people. The voices were the voices of people that I had disappointed up to that point. And the voices were usually saying, and I called them the tabernacle choir, and in unison they would be saying, Bobby, 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 what are you doing? Those were the voices I would hear, and I would need to drink on a regular basis just to drown those voices out because I knew the disappointment I was to them because I was such an incredible disappointment to me. I knew I wasn't who I needed to be for them, and it caused great emotional and mental and psychological challenges. And one day, I woke up, and I was standing in front of the mirror, February 11th of 1986, and I looked in the mirror expecting to hear the voices, and there were no voices there. And I listened, and there was no voice. And I listened, and there was no voice. And I looked in the mirror and realized I wasn't hearing the voices because I was going to die. I was convinced that morning that if something didn't change, I was going to die. And we've said it before and we'll hear it again and I hope we always hear it. It's that, it's not that we wanted to die, it's just that we didn't know how to live. We had gotten so far, I had gotten so far off track, I did not know how to go through life without having a particular level of alcohol in me that kept me from feeling the life I was so disappointed in. And in that moment of clarity, I walked over to the phone book. We had phone books back in those days, right? Remember those? <laughs> and, I, and I walked over to the phone book, and for the first time in my life, I admitted I had a problem because I looked in the yellow pages under alcoholism. Now, I grew up in Southern California. Up until I was nine years old, I lived in downtown LA, Central Market, Third and Hill, you know, my dad worked uh, two blocks from Skid Row on 7th and Alameda. I'm very familiar with what alcoholics look like, right? They wear bad clothes, they drink bad wine, and they push around shopping carts and they call that home, right? That was my idea what an alcoholic was. I didn't know that I was an alcoholic was a person who had lost the ability to control their drinking, right? Simple explanation. I thought it was everything else around it, and because I wasn't there yet, I didn't think I was. And yet that moment, I knew without hesitation that I needed to look in the yellow pages under alcoholism. And I started dialing treatment centers. And I would dial one and I would tell them who I was and what I was. And they'd say, do you have any money? I'd say, no. Do you have any insurance? I'd say, no. And it was click. 
And I went through that about five or six different times. And then I called the Nevada Treatment Center on Martin Luther King Boulevard, right off of Charleston in Las Vegas. And I called him up and I said, hey, my name is Robert Pardon, and I think I have a problem with alcohol and I don't know what to do. And I was expecting to hear the answers or the questions that I got that caused them to hang up. And they said, do you have $50? Can you get $50 and meet us here in an hour? I said, sure, <laughs> you know, any good alcoholic, right? Drug addict can find 50 bucks in an hour. And I was certainly capable of, of getting over one more time to do that. So I called up my dad. My dad and I were very estranged by this point because my dad actually had gotten sober and, and he was more concerned with me than ever because my dad was alcoholic as well. But I called up my dad at his real estate office and said, hey, dad, here's the deal. I said, I need to get help. I need to go in this treatment center. And, 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 and they said if I could get a ride over there and bring $50, they, they would let me in. And so he came over right away, dropped me off to Nevada Treatment Center, and that was the beginning of my journey for alcoholism. You know, I didn't know how badly my alcoholism was, but I knew how lonely I was. I knew how afraid I was. I knew that something had to change because I just couldn't take it anymore. There wasn't enough alcohol and there wasn't enough drugs. I was very involved in crystal methadrine and crank in Las Vegas because I didn't like remorse. It made perfect good sense at the time, right? When I drank, I would wake up the next day and I would have remorse, right? Remembering who I was, what I had done, and it would cause me deep depression. I would have to drink some more. So I realized in my mind, well, if I could stay up three or four days at a time, I could cut my remorse down to two days a week, right? So it made, it made perfectly good sense to this alcoholic. And so, so I go to the Nevada Treatment Center, and I'm in this detox, and I'm seeing all these other people around me, and I'm really not even sure what's happened to me. I just knew I needed to go somewhere, that I had a problem, and something needed to change. So I would go to these group meetings and things like that, and and they started taking us to AA meetings to the turning point where I would eventually end up and find my sponsor. And, and I began to get a sense of belonging. Do you remember that feeling when you walked into a meeting, maybe not your first time, your fifth time, but, but you had that feeling that you were home, that you never had to go anywhere else to feel like you belonged. That's what happened to me at the turning point. Now, like any good person in recovery, a little physical sobriety is our worst enemy, right? You get me 30-day chip, 60-day chip, and I'm looking good, I'm feeling good. You know, I've, the, the law is not as much after me as they were because they realize I'm trying to do something for myself. Some of my family members are starting to say, hey, maybe you're on the right track, right? starting to repair some of those uh, breaks. And we start thinking, well, maybe I don't need to do these things as much as others say, or, or maybe I can do that fake it till I make it, right? So, so we learn the AAEs, as it were. We start picking up on the cliches. We start 
learning about keep coming back. It works if you work it. God couldn't, what if he were sought, right? This too shall pass. Keep it simple, sweetheart. One day at a time, take it easy. All the things that we learn and we hear along the way and we think, you know, if I could just parrot those and get them to think that I'm okay, maybe I will be okay and maybe I don't need to be here as much. I don't know if anyone else has been guilty of that thinking, but it made perfectly good sense to me at the time because I had a very good job waiting back for me that I thought, well, I can do both. I knew that this job was a bad place for me because they were drinking and they were using and the kind of lifestyle we were involved in in the entertainment industry wasn't very conducive to real sobriety. But I marginalized because that's what we do. We bargain with our recovery, with our sobriety. And that's what I did. And that worked. I want you to know that that worked perfectly good right up until I relapsed at 71 days, right? So I want you to know it'll work up to a point and then, right? And then we have to rely on, rarely have we seen a person fail who has thoroughly followed our path. Those who do not recover are people who cannot or will not completely give themselves to this simple program. That was me. I wasn't really willing to give myself to this simple program. You could have a piece of me, but here was the problem. To do the steps, to really believe in the plan of recovery as it's laid out in the first 164 pages, I have to admit defeat like only the dying can. That's what Bill says in the 12 and 12. As only the dying can. So I have to believe that if I ever drink again, I will die. And I wasn't ready to do that because I wasn't convinced. And then I met this friend of mine named Pete the Greek. Las Vegas was great for nicknames. Pete the Greek, Texas Eddie, um, uh, Abe the Plumber, um, uh, who was it, uh, Russian Ted. I mean, everyone had a, had a nickname associated with them. And all these people were, were old timers. So, so one day, I was talking about how powerless I really am. And, and so I go up to Ted, and, and I was happen to have a miserable day. And if you heard me speak last time at the... Alano Club, you probably have heard this story. But I went up to Ted after, after a particularly bad day, and I started telling him uh, how miserable life was. And I'm telling him a story, telling him a story, and, and, and Ted, in his great, incredible wisdom, looks at me when everything is done, and, and Ted had been sober about 19, 20 years, and he looked at me and he said, but are you grateful? And I said, what are you talking about, man? How, how could I be grateful? Did you even hear what I just said to you? And, and, and he said, Robert, listen to me. He said, based on the degree of your gratitude for today will determine the quality and the quantity of your sobriety moving forward. And then he said, let me ask you a question. If you were standing on the railroad tracks and a 150-car train was coming through and it killed you, how much do you think it would have to do with the caboose? And I looked at him like a, a normal person would and say, well, absolutely nothing. And he said, exactly. And it's the first drink that's gonna get you drunk. And that was really my introduction to step one in understanding how powerless I am over alcohol and how unmanageable my life had become. Because my life had always been unmanageable. I was lonely and sad and scared from early childhood. You know, and, and I learned earlier, later on, that it wasn't 
how things were given to me or what was given to me. It was how I processed it. So no matter what you said to me or how you loved me or how you cared for me, I processed it as a person who wasn't worthy of any of those things. Consequently, I rejected them. And my life had become unmanageable to the point where when I was 14 years old, um, I drank for the first time. And I was under a tree with a couple of friends of mine. And, and we were, our parents had passed out and, and Donnie could get a little bit of wine and I could get some 10 high and some cores from my parents and, and, and Mike Moran from next door could get something as well. So we, we sat under the tree that night and I had my first drink. It was the summer of, of uh, 14 years old. And so I did that to get away. Every subsequent drink I had up to my being chronic where, where drinking controlled me I was no longer able to control my drinking. I wanted to recapture the way I felt when I was 14 years old. Anybody ever, ever drink that way? I wanted to recapture. I wanted to go back to that moment of being what I call an almost. When you, when you think you come from nothing, it means you are a nothing. And the prognosis is you will always be a nothing. That's, that was my view of me, regardless of what was in my life or not in my life, good, bad, or indifferent, that was my perspective underlying. No matter how I acted things out, at the end of the day, that was my view of me. And so drinking quieted the madness. It told me, no, nah, you're not a nothing, <laughs> you're an almost. And when you come from nothing, and you are nothing, and you always think you're going to be a nothing, being an almost is everything, is everything, and it was everything to me. And going and recapturing that and trying to bring back that in the beginning sort of worked, but sometimes for people like you and me, what worked in the beginning begins to harm us at the end. Because then over time, we develop that phenomena of craving the big book says it doesn't happen in the, in the average or the temperate drinker, you know. But for people like you and me, it's that first drink that gets us drunk because it's Katie barred the door after that, right? That's why we have this mental obsession coupled with the physical allergy going back to the recovered side of things. My dear friend Tom Bennett said, you only have to worry about one thing. Don't worry about your physical allergy. It never has to be an effect to you. And I'm so glad he pointed that out to me because being an alcoholic is stamped in my DNA. And that DNA says I can never safely drink again. So that's never going to change. So if something's not going to change, why worry about it? I can't do anything to moderate that. I can't do anything to make that a little bit easier where I can learn how to drink like an average person, where I can actually show up when I'm supposed to the next day or the next week or the next month. So if that part of me is never going to change, then why even be concerned with it? What I need to be concerned with is a mental obsession that tells me I need to have that first drink. That's what I need to deal with. And it's interesting that in the doctor's opinion, I'm a big fan of the big book. And in the doctor's opinion, Dr. Silkworth tells a story about men and women drink essentially because they like the effect produced by alcohol. And that's on Roman numeral 26. And then in the following page, he talks about the person who repeats it over and over and over again, right? 
And then in the next paragraph, he says, on the other hand, and as strange as it may seem to those who suffer from alcoholism, the very same person who seemed doomed, he had so many problems, he, he was resolved, he, he knew he was never going to resolve them, now finds himself easily able to control his desire for alcohol. The only requirement necessary is to follow a few simple rules. Now, damn, I can follow some rules. I just need to know what the rules are. Right? So I went to my sponsor, Jack. I said, Jack, what are these rules? I need to know what they are. And, and, and I thought they were different rules, right? We get rather naive. So I knew there was the steps. I knew there were the first 164 pages. But if there's some secret rules, tell me what they are because I can't relapse again. Because I might not make it back. Because we know people like that, right? We know people who relapse and we never see them again. Now, they might have got a condo and their vacation in Florida, we don't know. But if they're alcoholic like you and me, they're probably incarcerated, insane, or dead. Those are pretty much the options for us as we would resume our drinking career. Because here's the thing about alcohol that's really scary. It, it's a progressive disease, right? That's why Bill said over any considerable period, things get worse, never better, and more about alcoholism. Understanding the progression of a disease should scare you to no end. And for those of us, for those of you who are newly sober, I hope it scares you to death. For those of us who have been around a while, I hope we're staying sober because of the things that we get, not the things that we're afraid of. But that's always a reality for us. Have you ever known anyone who has gone back out after a length of sobriety and, and, and first it's a beer, then it's a bottle, then it's a case, then it's, and, and within three weeks, a month, they're worse than ever before and oftentimes dead. I've known people that way. And the reason for that is alcoholism is a progressive disease. Alcoholism picks up where we would have been had we never stopped. And it's part of the clinical phenomena of craving that even doctors don't understand. They can dissect the brain all day long, but they don't know why this happens in alcoholics. They just know that it does. Again, it's the phenomena of craving. And a phenomena is something where you know it happens, but you're not sure quite why. That's the phenomena. And so we know this about ourselves, And so we can never safely go back. So for those of us who have been around for a while, right, we continue to clean house. We continue to trust God. We continue to work for others. I work with a lot of treatment centers and have an opportunity to share with people on social media and being a part of their life and being a part of their recovery. And that's one of the things that I always try to share with them is that the importance of understanding how necessary it is to do a thorough first, uh, first step. My friend uh, Pete the Great told me it's the only step you ever have to do to perfection. Does that make sense? You know, steps two through 12, I can make a mistake in and I might get a little sideways emotionally or spiritually a little off balance. But as long as I haven't made a mistake with step one, I'll probably be okay, and I can get through the next day to get back on guard. But if I make a mistake with step one, if I believe that just for a moment that maybe it's okay for me to have one, right? Because I've been sober 34 years. Or maybe my life wasn't quite as unmanageable with respect to my relationships, my jobs, and all the other aspects of my life. The minute I believe that, I'm in trouble. And the likelihood is, there's nothing that's going to save me because people don't relapse in a vacuum. People relapse over time. 
we begin relapsing in our mind and in our spirit to where when we finally go to take that drink, we've already justified it to ourselves. And that's really true. Working a lot in relapse prevention, I find that to be very true with people. Where did you start to get off track? Where did you stop going to meetings? Where did you stop sponsoring? Where did you stop talking to your sponsor? Where did you stop praying? Where did you stop reading your recovery material? Where did you stop sharing your experience, strength, and hope with each other, right? Where did you stop those things? Because that's when your relapse began. And, and if you don't believe that, I'm perfectly fine with you not believing that, but I just appreciate if you don't share that with the newcomer, right? Just keep that to yourself. And I say that not in arrogance. I've been at this a long time, which many of you have, and, and you probably agree with me. We need to continue to do the things that we were doing to keep what we have. And that's really the miracle of this whole thing. I was telling Todd a little bit earlier, you know, the, the fact that I've been clean and sober today, April 25th, 1986, so today is literally 34 years for me, right? More importantly, it's 12,419 days. That's the number I want to remember because what we really have is a daily reprieve contingent on the maintenance of our spiritual conditioning. So if that's true, then it's about the day, isn't it? And what's really nice as I go into centers and share with people on a regular basis, I have them set aside how many years I've been sober because I deal with people who have been sober seven days, 15 days, 20 days, and every one of us needs to see the power and the value in the day. Because if we don't, we get too far ahead of ourselves. And, and I'm not a skier, uh, but, but, but I know there's a term that says don't get too far in front of your skis, right? Because if you do, you're likely to tumble and have an accident and that can get real messy. And so it's, it's important to say, you know what, I'm coming up on this, I'm coming up on that. But at the end of the day, what do I have right now? What difference is I'm making right now? Where can I make a difference in the life of someone? Again, going back to earlier on with Chaz, sharing the preamble of Alcoholics Anonymous. You know, Alcoholics Anonymous is a fellowship of men and women who share. I tell people that I wasn't sure how much of an alcohol problem I had when I first came here. I would, I would find out rather quickly but I wasn't sure if I was an alcoholic. But I knew that I was so fellowship starved. I was so lonely for real companionship where I could just be who I was and not be afraid of the next thing that was going to happen. To sit and relax in a room for the sake of sitting and relaxing in a room or sitting across from a person and not worrying about what they thought of me right? I was fellowship craved. So Alcoholics Anonymous is a fellowship of men and women who share. It's a fellowship who shares. And I don't know about you. Well, I actually, I do because you hang out at the uh, Bountiful Alano Club. So, so I know about you. And that's why you go there because you like the fellowship. You enjoy sharing with others, right? Because it's that sharing with others, that notion that we're not alone anymore, Right, Because we never are anymore. We never are practically, emotionally, spiritually, which leads me to my most favorite topic of all with recovery is God. 
Everywhere you look in the program of Alcoholics Anonymous, it is about God, period. And I will challenge everyone here tonight that the 12 steps of Alcoholics Anonymous are not steps designed, nor is the first 164 pages, is not steps or a program designed to show you how not to drink. The program of Alcoholics Anonymous is a program designed to show you and me how to have a relationship with God as we understand God, and as a result of that relationship, we will no longer want to drink, period. That is the program of Alcoholics Anonymous in a nutshell. As we accept God, as we understand God, just like light pushes out dark, you don't have to get rid of dark to introduce light. Light will take care of that all by itself, right? Just like God, as, as we understand God, will begin to push out all the negative things in our life where there's just no attraction for us anymore, right? And we know that because we go through the defeat of step one, admitting our powerlessness as only the dying can. And then we're introduced to step two and came to believe that a power greater than ourselves could restore us to sanity. Who doesn't want to be restored to sanity? Because when we come out of step one, we realize all of the crazy things we did to get to the rooms of Alcoholics Anonymous. A sane people, sane people don't do what you and I did. They just don't. It's one of the reasons we drank the way we drank to, to, to rationalize, minimize, and deny all the things we were doing because it doesn't make sense. And when we put it down on paper, thank God there's a step two because then it opens up the door for hope. And John Maxwell said, if there's hope in the future, there's power in the present. It was a great quote, amazing quote. If there's hope in the future, there's power in the present. So I come out of a position of being powerless and I'm introduced to hope in step two that maybe I can be restored to sanity. Now the debate is being restored means I was something at one time. So I'm not really sure if there was ever a point in my life where I could qualify as sane, right? But, but you get the picture, right? And, and, and so we, we embrace that baby stepping, like what about Bob, right? Baby stepping. Everything we do is incremental and designed to draw us nearer to a bigger picture that will allow us to see a life of recovery that we can have forever. Because it is a design for living, even though it's one day at a time, right? Again, what we really have is a daily reprieve. But God has designed it, and, and thank God for the wisdom of Bill and Bob in the first 100 who really laid this whole thing out. Because it is a design for living. We, we really are meant to stay sober forever. You know, my sponsor, Jack, who uh, we lost uh, February of, of 2019. Jack was my sponsor for 33 of my, 30, at the time, 32 of my 33 years. And he becomes such a, a wonderful friend of mine. And, and as I sat in Las Vegas with him at his hospital bed, Knowing he was going to die wasn't, wasn't a matter of if, it was just a matter of how many days does he have left. And he was a giant of a man in sobriety. He had 44 years of recovery when he died. And, and I said to him, Jack, you know, because I want to carry the legacy, right? We all want to carry the legacy of the people who have gone before us. So I looked at him and I said, Jack, what do I tell him? What do I, 
What's your message that I can take to the people when I speak in your memory? And he looked at me and by this time the cancer had ravaged him so much, his eyes were sunken. He was not the man I knew physically, but in his heart he was up until he died. And he looked at me and he said, Bob, tell him it works. And that was the last thing he said to me. Two days later, he passed away. But it does work. It works whether we work it or not. We just have to stick around, right? But it certainly works when we work it. And we get that hope in step two. And then from step two, we translate into step three, where we made a decision to turn our will and our life over to the care of God as we understood God. How simple is that? All we're doing is making a decision. So step two is about God and me. Step three is about God and me. And I graduated into step four where I made a searching and fearless moral inventory of myself. Morality is of God, so of course that step is about God. Step five, admitting to myself, to God, and to another human being the exact nature of our, is all about God. Step six and seven, about God's shortcomings and defects of character. Eight and nine are practical steps, and then I get into step 10, and I continue to take personal inventory and when I'm wrong, promptly admit it. It's about God and searching my heart and searching what he has built in me. And then, of course, step 11, it's undeniably about God. And step 12, having had a spiritual awakening, a little bit about God. So when we look at the 12 steps of Alcoholics Anonymous, we look at nine of the 12 steps directly dealing with my relationship with God as I understand God. You can't take the steps and not understand that it has nothing to do with drinking. It has everything to do with developing a relationship with God as you understand God. And it might be the most powerful thing, Bill and his story, where he talks about knowing that he can now find a form of God that makes sense. That was his key. He, he said, and I, and I hope I don't misquote, but he stood in the shadows of icy intellectual self and he stood in the sunlight at last. And I love that picture, right? It can be a little cold and a little chilly. And do you ever, do you ever get into your vehicle after it's been sitting and, and having the sun reflect through the windshield and you got a little bit of chill on you and you get in your vehicle and you feel that warmth around you? That's what Bill was talking about. The icy shadows of intellectual self where he was starving and dying and now he comes to this understanding of God as he understood God, and it can be his own conception. And he says, I stand in the sunlight at last. That's pretty, that's pretty cool, isn't it? How many of us want to stand in the sunlight? Because we were so afraid, we were so cold, we were so alone, we were so despaired. Bill calls it incomprehensible demoralization. What a term. Incomprehensible. Do you know what that means? Break it down. I don't know how I got here. I don't understand that. I don't know what to do to get out. And demoralization just means we are so far down, we don't even have value. So I don't even have value, and I don't even know how it happened, and I go from there to standing in the sunlight at last. I want some of that. That's what I want. That's what I want to be. And one of the reasons I get so excited after 34 years of personal recovery is because it continues to happen day in and day out. My daughter Carol is with us from Las Vegas. I walked out on her and her mom so I could go drink and I never walked back. And yet 
I walk from that shadow of fear and intellectual self to standing in the sunlight of having an incredible relationship with my daughter after all these years. She is one of my biggest fans, and I'm one of hers as well, because she has had to overcome things just as I have had to overcome things. But that's what happens in the program of Alcoholics Anonymous, and that's where God could and would if he were sought. And if, and if you're new or relatively new to the program, I want to encourage you to get into the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous because everything I share with you, I believe is irrefutable from the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous. And I like to be very careful with that because if it's my opinion, I mean, it's my perspective of how I translate things, but that's not my real opinion. That's my version, right? But, and that's why I try to quote as much as I possibly can. Because if, if, if we're going at my opinion and you want to have an argument with me, the likelihood is you're going to win the argument, right? Or I'm going to walk away and say you win because and, and, I don't want to argue, right? But, but if I quote you something from the big book that at the end of this meeting, I can take you to the page and show you the paragraph and show you the sentence and show you exactly where it says it, guess who your argument is with? It's no longer with me, it's with the program of Alcoholics Anonymous. And it doesn't make sense to argue with something that you're in, right? That's like fighting against yourself. It's, it's, it's an unreasonable approach to logic that just doesn't make sense on any level. You know, and we turn in our will and our life over to the care of God as we understood God, praying only for the knowledge of his will for us and the power to carry that out. You know, on page 85, it says, again, what we really have is a daily reprieve contingent on the maintenance of our spiritual conditioning. And it says, every day I need to find God's vision for me and then go carry that out. That's how deeply embedded God as we understand God is in this program. And as I walked through the steps and I began to understand all the things that I had become, and I asked God to remove those defects of characters and those shortcomings from me, and I continue to, to hone who I am and become even more. Again, we're never done. That's why I am as excited today about my personal recovery. And you can ask my kids. My son Rob is here, my daughter Jane, my daughter-in-law Phoebe, and my daughter Carol. They'll tell you, no, this is how my dad is, right? Because I want to see what's going to happen next. Because my friend Tom Bennett told me, in the big book it says that we can become well. Are you ready for that word? I love that word. And that's what every sick person should want to be. Remember, we're not bad people trying to get better. We're sick people trying to get well. And the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous tells me that I can become well. Tom took it to a whole nother level and says, Robert, you can become weller than the well. He said, forget about the fact that it's terrible grammar, right? But the whole notion, how well can I become? And you know what? There really is no limit. There is no limit to what God wants us to be, how we can have a voice and an opportunity to share with someone else. Because the, the problem of alcoholism is a lot bigger than those of us who are in this room at this park tonight. There are people who really come into those rooms and they're scared, just like you and me. And if they don't see an energy and an excitement and a sincerity and a commitment, they're going to think, well, maybe this isn't for me after all. Maybe I was looking for something that had a little bit more to it than what these people have. And maybe they go away. But if we who are called, again, that's our spiritual commitment. In, in, in tradition one, it talks about, um, it talks about um, 
for our, our common welfare, our common welfare should come first. Personal recovery depends upon AA unity. That's the first tradition of the 12. Our common welfare, you and me, how we get along, how we exercise the program, how we share. Personal recovery, my recovery, depends upon how you and I see eye to eye. How we agree on the principles and the precepts and, and how it works. You know, there can't be any disagreement, right? Because when we get to the end of, of chapter 5 in terms of what we read, it says there are three pertinent ideas, right? You know them. A, that we were powerless over alcohol and could not manage our own lives. B, that probably no human power could have relieved our alcoholism. And C, that God couldn't and would if he were sought, right? People are coming into the rooms every single day who are seeking the same things that you and I were seeking. And if they could see no hope, if they could see no joy, if they could see no opportunity for them to go from where they are to where they would hope to be, they won't stay. But you and me who are committed to recovery, and I know you're committed because you're here tonight. It'd have been easy not to show up, but you're here. That means you not only care about your personal recovery, but you care about the person next to you. You know, and I know we've got this six feet of separation, but in our hearts, we're joined, right? And as we get ready to close, I'm gonna make sure I don't miss a word here. But my favorite page of the big book is page 17. And it's the first page in There is a Solution. And isn't that nice? We have a solution. We came in here wondering if our life could ever change. And so many of us come here, by the way, through what I call coercion. Very few people, I've, I've yet to meet one who showed up to a, to a meeting and said, you know, my life is pretty good. Job's going great. Wife loves me. Kids aren't mad at me. The dog comes up to me when I come home and got my bills all paid. Don't have to worry about a repo on my car. Everything is, the law's not after me. Everything's pretty good. I think I'll go to one of those AA meetings. It don't happen that way. We come in here bankrupt, right? We come in here so disappointed in life in itself, and yet we find something within these rooms of Alcoholics Anonymous. You know, the example that it's used, and I'm going to go ahead and read this, and I'm going to close and give Chaz an opportunity to close out the meeting. If, you, if you're not a student of the Big Book of Alcoholics Anonymous, I invite you to be, right? It's the Bible of everything that we do. And what's wonderful is the program of Alcoholics Anonymous speaks to everyone because it's about a relationship with God as we understand God. No one defines that relationship for you. If it works for you and it makes sense, then it works, right? But here we go. Chapter two, there is a solution. We of Alcoholics Anonymous know thousands of men and women who were once just as hopeless as Bill. Nearly all have recovered. 
They have solved the drink problem. We are average Americans, all sections of this country, and many of its occupations are represented, as well as many political, economic, social, and religious backgrounds. We are a people who normally would not mix, but there exists amongst us a fellowship and an understanding which is indescribably wonderful. We are like the passengers of a great liner, the moment after rescue from shipwreck when camaraderie, joyousness, and democracy pervade the vessel from steerage to captain's table. Unlike the feeling of the ship's passengers, however, our joy and escape from disaster does not subside of having gone our own individual ways. The feeling of having shared is a common peril in one element of the powerful cement which now binds us. But that in itself would have not held us together as we are now joined. The tremendous fact for every one of us is that we have discovered a common solution. We have a way out on which we can absolutely agree and, and upon which we can join in brotherly and harmonious action. This is the great news this book carries to those who suffer from alcoholism. My name is Robert and I'm alcoholic. Thank you for coming. Um, Robert, thanks for coming today and sharing your experience, strength, and hope. Um, I know I needed uh, a little bit of experience, strength, and hope with everything.